Good morning. Welcome to all of you who are present and online with us today. Excuse me. We're continuing in the book of Mark this week. Um, and we've looked at several stories or pictures about Jesus that Mark has put into his gospel. And we're now in our eighth week. And for those of you who are regular attenders, you know that usually we walk through the prior sermons. But I'm not going to make you listen to all eight of them. I'll just recount that a few of the pictures of Jesus has told us, among other things, about the purpose of God, the light of God, the delight of God in Jesus, Jesus' authority, prayer, and faith. Now, I want you to notice something. Here we are in Mark 4, um, and we've had one picture after another. These are all what we would call narratives. And although we've learned a lot about Jesus and what he has taught to his disciples in these pictures or narratives, we really haven't seen any sizable blocks of Jesus' teaching. This is different than, say, the Gospel of John, where there's just huge parts of extensive passages of Jesus' teaching. Mark just doesn't seem to do it that way. There are, in fact, only two times when Mark departs from the narrative format to include sizable blocks of Jesus' teaching. One is the passage we have today, and the other is in Mark 13, where Jesus teaches the disciples about the end times. And we haven't seen much of that most common of Jesus' teaching techniques, a parable. We have seen Jesus use some metaphors, and there's some short statements toward the end of Mark 3 that Mark characterizes as parables, but they're very short. They're not what we typically think of as parables. And so today we have Mark's narrative that includes a lengthy parable from Jesus. Not only that, he tells us something about the purpose of parables, something about a secret that may sound a bit disturbing at first. So as we go through our passage today, we're actually going to look at the middle first. We're going to look at verses 10 through 12 before we go on to think about the, the parable itself and how it applies to our experience in our lives. So I invite you to look in the bulletin or read in your Bible as we go along. Mark 4, verse 10. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they may return and be forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but on the surface of it, this seems a bit odd and maybe even a little offensive. Why would Jesus want to come for the redemption of man and hide it from people? Why would he want to keep it a secret? Now, you may recall a few weeks ago when I was preaching, I talked about another secret. And that was the secret that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus indeed did want that to be a secret because of the cultural misunderstanding of who the Messiah was and what he was to do. But here he seems to be saying that he wants to hide the path to redemption. It says otherwise they might return and be forgiven. What does he mean by this? Now, as you might expect, through the centuries there have been different understandings by different people, but most of the understandings of this kind of fall into two broad categories that aren't completely unrelated. The first is that the kingdom of God itself is secretly beginning to operate in the world with the coming of Jesus. And the disciples and other followers, including us as the present followers of Jesus, are chosen to participate in the proclamation advance of the kingdom. 
Now, related to this idea is the observation that this word, while translated secret in our uh, text today, is sometimes translated here, mystery. And throughout the epistles in, in, in Revelation, the same word is used and is most often translated mystery. But there it means something quite specific. It means something unknown in the past that is now being revealed by divine revelation. So the secret or mystery that is hidden in the parables is the unfolding secret that the kingdom of God is revealed in the coming of Jesus. Now, a second understanding of this secret is that the parables actually then confirm the states of people's hearts. Insiders who are with Jesus will be given the understanding of the mystery. And outsiders who are not with Jesus will be confirmed in their disbelief. It is very much like Isaiah 6, which Jesus actually quotes here in verse 12. In Isaiah 6, God knowingly sends Isaiah to proclaim his messages, and he tells them they're not going to listen. In fact, it's the passage, it's the verses we have there in verse 12. So Jesus is not telling his disciples that he is using parables to hide himself from others, but he is affirming to them that they have been chosen to participate in the unfolding secret of the kingdom of God, this mystery that is now entered into the world of humans and is being revealed. And their response to him confirms that they are insiders to this secret. And after all, it's not a secret or hidden at all, is it? I mean, Jesus is out healing people in front of everyone. It's a secret or a mystery because it's not understood or recognized by others. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? We will see more parables as we go through the next few weeks, but let's turn to the one we have today. The parable itself is well known to many of us. To review in verses 1 through 8, we see that the sower is sowing seed, and so it would seem not very carefully, right? Some falls on the hard ground that's been founded by foot traffic, the road. Some falls away from the road, but on rocks. Some falls on an area that is already infested with weeds and thorns. And some falls on good soil without much in the way of weeds and thorns, and it grows 30 and 60 and 100 fold. And then in verses 13 through 20, we hear Jesus' explanation. The seed is the word of God. The hard ground is those who hear the word, but it is taken away immediately by Satan. The rocky ground is those who hear the word, and it seems to grow well, but then dries out and burns up from the heat of affliction and persecution. The weedy ground is those who hear the word and respond initially, but their growth is choked out by the distractions of the world and worries of the world and the gods of the world. And the good soil is those who hear the word and respond and grow, and they grow miraculously. Now, before we think about how to apply this to our lives, let me point out a couple of other things that I learned in my study. One's only recognized if you read this in Greek, and as I've told you before, I don't actually read Greek. I have to read people's commentaries about understanding the Greek. But when you do so, what you'll discover is that the verbs used in the first situations where Satan steals, where there is no root and where wealth and worldly desires choke the word, these verbs are in what is called in the Greek the aorist tense. We would call it the simple past tense. Something quickly done and over with, it implies that the people in these first three situations gave the word only a quick superficial hearing in one ear out the other without effort or heeding. But the verb in verse 20 changes. It's the present tense. 
indicating that this is a continual ongoing hearing and bearing. Not only is the initial response of the hearer one they bear fruit, but that hearing and bearing continues on and on. Now, my second point requires some knowledge of ancient agricultural practices and yields. Again, I am hardly an expert on ancient agricultural practices and yields. I'm not an expert on agricultural practices today. I can't grow anything. All right? I think my tomatoes have one tomato. And it, it's not even all the way round. It's really pretty sad. All right. So one may wonder why it is that the seed was thrown where it was, was sown where it was. Well, you know, as is pretty obvious, they didn't have machines to sow seeds back then, right? So how did they do it? They threw it out by hand, all right? So they are throwing the seed out by hand as they sow. And so as you got to the edge of the good soil, it would be easy for some of it to miss. Because you wanted to get all the way to the edge of the good soil because you wanted to get as much as you could. So you would throw it and it would go out into the road or the rocky soil or out into the seeds, uh, the weeds and thorns. This kind of reminds me of my front walk. My front walk is brick. And every year we reseed our lawn because we have to to make it be green. All right. And every year I get grassy growing up in the bricks. It's kind of remarkable, frankly growing up between the bricks of my walk. And, and you know, I just kind of wish that grass would be like the seed that falls on the rocky soil here, where it just kind of shrivels up and dies. But it never does. I always have to pull it up or, or kill it with some grass killer or something. But again, it's that same image. You, you, you have this path that you have this edge of the grass of, of my lawn, and, and it's getting sown beyond the edges of it. And some of it will grow. In my case, it seems to keep growing, but in Jesus' description, it does not. In addition, studies of yields in Palestinian grain fields, if you look at agricultural methods that they would have used of the day, would have at best yielded a tenfold yield, usually only seven or eight. And so for Jesus to say that this was a, uh, a, a that the, that the yield from the good soil was 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold, this would be miraculous. And I, I think this gives us some insight into how Jesus' followers and uh, people who were listening to this parable would have understood the parable. They would have just been utterly amazed of that kind of yield. So the parable of the sower, or as it is sometimes called the parable of the seed, or it's sometimes I think probably best called the parable of the soils, indicates that the word is sown broadly, but its effects depend on its reception. And that brings us to some applications. The first application I want to point out is really the more obvious one. This parable is describing the experience of believers as they share the gospel with non-believers around them. And indeed, when we share with others about our faith, you sometimes, and perhaps oftentimes, perhaps even most times, get immediate rejection. You'll sometimes get a bit of interest, maybe further discussion or even people joining you at church for a time or community group, but they quickly fall away when things get tough. And that toughness could come because of their own thinking that they can't really sort everything out and move forward toward Jesus or it comes out from other people saying things to them. And then sometimes in my experience, probably a bit more rarely, you have people who respond uh, and participate even longer but eventually they're lured away from Jesus by those other gods that the world offers. 
And then you'll sometimes share the gospel, and from that sharing comes a great harvest. That harvest may be one person or it may be many. Frankly, they're all miraculous and great. So let me share a couple of examples. One is from my own life, where the seeds that I've sown most commonly have met with outright rejection. Now, my strategy as I worked and practiced in medicine was uh, to drop, I still do this, and I did it in the past, drop comments uh, about God, about my belief, about maybe something I read in my devotions that morning, about attending church, something as I chat with my colleagues or I interact with my patients. And frankly, most of the time, it's ignored and just rejected. Every now and then you see a glimmer of interest in life, but that too's usually gone away quickly. And then on occasion, I've seen the seed grow and flourish, and then watched as that plant grows and nourishes others. One of my favorite examples is a member of this church. I did ask her if I could share this beforehand, so I, I can. Now, I don't know how many of you are uh, know about the relationship of doctors and people in the pharmaceutical industry that call on doctors. It is sometimes strained, all right? Um, in our verbiage, we call them drug reps, and, uh, and they do good work. Don't get me wrong. They work hard. They bring us good information uh, sometimes. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, uh, honestly, I was in internal medicine. I was a primary care physician. I was busy all day, and they were, they were a distraction um, most of the time. And they would come in during a busy day to try to convince me to use their product. And, um, and I've got to tell you, this is not a very... Christian thing to have done, but I, I got to tell you, sometimes I kind of enjoyed um, asking them questions they couldn't answer, you know, particularly if their manager was there. That was, that was the best time to do it. It wasn't very nice of me, but I would do it occasionally. But, but I would also drop these comments that I described earlier, and I dropped one of those on Diane Cashin one time. Many of you know Diane. Much to my surprise, she responded, and that began a long relationship in which many, many theological discussions took the place of our usual pharmaceutical discussions. I always enjoyed it when Diane came to see us. In fact, I probably took way too much time because I would be so interested in talking to her. I'd get behind with my patients. They were a lot of fun, frankly, a lot more challenging. Uh, I might ask questions that stump the, the pharmaceutical representative, but she would ask questions that stump me. But it was so great to see her grow. Um, I watched her grow from kind of being a nominal Christian, somebody who went to church but didn't really know what it all meant, to someone who loved the Lord intensely. And so when Todd and Michael asked me and Annette to come here to join Hope Chapel when it was started, I invited Diane, and she's been with us ever since. And our church community truly would not be the same without Diane's love, caring, and devotion to Jesus and to each one of us. That's what it means when the seed drops on good soil. The second example is a missionary family that several of us support, the, the Carters. They've been laboring for more than 10 years in various parts of Chad. Now, I've got to tell you, if you want to think about a dry and rocky place, think about Chad. I mean, it's not only spiritually dry and rocky because it's Muslim predominantly, but it is literally rocky and dry. You know, I mean, the pictures they send us, except for the rainy season, it was just like, you better like brown. I mean, that's really what it is. But recently, their faithfulness of sowing the seed of the gospel has, been, um, ye has yielded a great harvest through a Muslim uh, background believer who is just sharing the gospel like crazy among his fellow Muslims. 
And you recall, might recall that Kathy York actually prayed for him in a recent service. It's an amazing story of faithfulness, sacrifice, and bountiful harvest. And that harvest is continuing, just like the parable says. So let me reflect for a moment on what this application means for us. It's really pretty simple. We're to sow. That's our job. We're to throw the seed out. The sowing may be done differently by each of us. I had my style, you have your style. But we are not to worry about what the soil is like where we're throwing the seed. It's not our job to prepare the soil or predict the yield or decide not to sow because nothing will grow there anyway or anything like that. That's God's work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to share the gospel in our actions and occasionally in our words. The result is up to God. Now, the second application I want to briefly ponder is to think about this parable in the context of our own lives. Now, make no mistake, Jesus tells us that the parable is about sowing the seed of the gospel in others. But I can't help but think about this parable in the context of my own life and my own experience, and I suspect your life and your experience. Is it not our experience as believers that we sometimes go through times in which the gospel brings little solace? That it seems like the joy and everything, even wondering about truth, everything's just been snatched away. Is it not our experience that we go through times of persecution and difficulty and sometimes we're not as faithful as we should be? And do we not as individuals have times in our lives in which we see the work of the gospel in our hearts, choked out by the worries, riches, distractions, and gods of this world? And are there not times with Jesus where we have periods of what can only be termed miraculous growth, where we're fruitful in prayer, service, love, and evangelism? Let me reassure you that if your experience is ever one of the first three, you're normal as a follower of Jesus. Right? Don't despair. It seems to me that the parable of Swole describes not only the response of those who might hear it as we spread the seed, but it also describes ourselves and our lives with Jesus. So that begs the question, what do we do when we find ourselves essentially being bad soil? Recall that I said before that when we sow in others, we should sow broadly and not worry about the quality of the soil. But I'm not sure that that analogy is correct or that, that that doesn't quite apply to us who follow Jesus. We need to be careful to do what we can to keep the soil good in our own lives. What do we do when we recognize that we might have become bad soil? When the word, the gospel is not bearing fruit in our lives? We should do what we've always remind ourselves to do in our service, what we've already done today. Every week in our prayer of repentance, we remind ourselves, repent, turn back to Jesus and follow him. And we should commit ourselves to those things that will improve the soil of our hearts. Reading and studying the scripture daily. Daily prayer. Corporate worship and fellowship. And service in the church and beyond. And as we do those things, God will be changing our hearts, improving the soil, and preparing us for periods of miraculous growth. So never in my life, I don't think, have I or the church or our culture needed the sowing of the seed more than now. 
for us to live and to sometimes speak the gospel. Let's recall the definition of the gospel. The gospel is discovering that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The flaws and sinfulness are ours individually and corporately, whether that be in our church, our society, or our culture. And the events of this year have certainly exposed those to me and to others. In my own case, earlier this year, it was troubling for me to truly realize how much I love to travel. Something new and different to anticipate, enjoy, remember, and how frustrated I became as one trip, whether it was local or more distant, was canceled due to the pandemic. And more recently, it has been agonizing for me to realize how much I have supported racism as an individual and as a member of society simply by being ignorant and silent about the plight of human beings who live in our midst. It was therefore sobering to realize how much I worship distraction instead of Jesus and how much I worship comfort and stability instead of justice and reconciliation. I am more sinful and flawed than I dared believe. And as we show the word, the gospel, it's going to reveal to us and to others sinful and flawed hearts. And as we do so, we can expect that the parable of the soils will define and describe the responses of people around us and sometimes ourselves. Outright rejection. Brief listening, but then turning back to your old ways. But sometimes we or they will listen and take to heart that glorious second part of the gospel that we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we can ever dare hope. And the results for those who follow Jesus will be change, repentance, reconciliation, and a harvest of understanding, peace, and love in us, in our community, in our culture, which will be miraculous and magnificent. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen.